We thank you, Lord, that with the fullness of revelation, the answer to the question of Psalm 15 comes to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that he, the perfect man, the Son of God, who took on flesh, who was incarnate, who was tempted in every way as we were yet without sin, can dwell on your holy hill. He, in his perfect righteousness, with his unstained Perfect honoring of the Father and fulfilling your every command, satisfaction of the law and all its purity and perfection alone can dwell in your presence. And Lord, acknowledging this, we find there is hope for us when he is our covenant head. For those who are in Christ, we can dwell in your presence. For those who enter through the torn flesh of his side, as it were, that broken body and shed blood that we celebrate at your table today, O Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm is the only way into the presence, into reconciliation, into fellowship with the holy God. One who cannot in his perfection allow any stain in his presence. We thank you that the power of Christ's blood to wash away our sins, to make us pure and holy, to sanctify us, to render us acceptable in your sight, is our hope and is our stay. Now, as we turn to your holy word, we're in the details of these things. This great plan of hope for mankind is laid out for all who place faith and trust in the Messiah. We pray that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our heart to appreciate, open our mouth to declare the greatness of your salvation and all that Christ may be glorified, his church may be fortified and equipped for the work of proclaiming your majesty and your glories to the ends of the earth, wherever you call us, as long as you tarry. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful to the Lord for gathering us together, His church, this morning. And I'm so thankful for the reason that we gather today, which is to worship our Lord and Savior to deepen our understanding and appreciation of what He has done for us. This will be, in so many words, the aim of this morning's message. This morning's message, the title of which is Full-Scale Redemption or Full-Scale Salvation, the aim of my sermon today is to expand our understanding and appreciation of redemption ultimately realized. Basically, uh, Peter lays out in his epistle, from the beginning, an understanding, and he also conveys a great appreciation, an absolutely enthralled and moved to worship attitude about the fullness of our salvation. Not just the narrow view of salvation that might be popular in our understanding today. How do you know you are saved? Well, you say the sinner's prayer. You go to an altar call. You have that moment where you commit your life to the Lord. You ask Jesus into your heart. For many, salvation in their understanding goes no further than that moment of change and whatever they might imagine signals it. However, Peter understands salvation, the apostle Peter does, in a far more robust, exhaustive, and big picture kind of way. He gives to us a message of the full scale, or he gives to us a meditation in his doxological, worshipful language of a full scale salvation. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. So with that introduction, would you stand once again out of reverence for God's word and let us hear the holy, infallible, inerrant word of our Lord through his apostle this day. 
This is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while it is, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This is the second in our series in 1 Peter, corresponding with Communion Sunday, the Lord's table that we celebrate on the first Sunday of the month. Now, in the interest of launching this series and just episode two here, let me give you a little bit more background, a little bit more notable structure of 1 Peter 1. These are thoughts that I've collected from my study this week. Many have noted the Apostle Peter's unique contributions to the canon, to Scripture, by way of theme and emphasis, sometimes calling him the Apostle of Hope. People refer to Peter sometimes as the Apostle of Hope because the thread, the theme of hope for the elect exile, as it were, is so prevalent in his writing as it is in our passage today. Certainly our text fits this distinctive. No doubt, Peter was inspired in part by his own experience with our Savior. We'll touch upon perhaps two moments in his own salvation experience, his own journey to understanding and faith in the course of this message to give us a background even from his own experience. So no doubt Peter is inspired in part by his own experience with our Savior and the gospel, but also in part by the plight of the churches to whom he writes. These churches in the Asiatic region, what is now Asia Minor, or what is generally referred to as Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, are regions in that vicinity. These churches are no stranger, it would appear, to at least the threat of persecution, suffering trial for their profession of faith. And Peter is no stranger to this persecution either, even as Jesus has prophesied he will incur as much. And so he finds solidarity in his experience, and he finds empathy as he writes with those who share a faith like his and a plight, a calling similar to his as well. Peter thus provides a poetically beautiful, a theologically rich, and transcendently encouraging opening to his epistle to his letter, extolling the glory of God evident in the beauty of our salvation, in the beauty of, so to speak, full-scale salvation. Now, a few other points to note. Several authors have pointed to categories in this portion and greater part of chapter 1 that are instructive and insightful as well. One commentator notes that the context, uh, that the time context is 
evidently pointing towards a future orientation in our verses today. What we can expect on the horizon as a result of our salvation. Future-oriented redemptive hope in verses 3 through 9. But this is quickly followed in verses 10 through 12 by Peter's recounting the prophetic history preceding the incarnation. Things that the prophets of old wrote about have now been experienced by those who have witnessed the incarnation, yes, even as eyewitnesses, but most importantly have witnessed the revelation of Jesus Christ as they have confessed their sin and placed faith in Him. The expositor's commentary, another source that I was studying this week, draws attention to the Trinitarian emphasis of our text. And the authors here note that God the Father is featured prominently in verses 3 through 5. God the Son and His work is featured in verses 6 through 9. And God the Spirit featured in verses 10 through 12. And this is fitting as Peter has already introduced the work of the Lord in salvation in summary in Trinitarian terms in verse 3. He says that we are elect exiles, as it were, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. In Peter's take on the full-scale nature of salvation, he recognizes that this work entailed the three persons of the Trinity. And so he expands this in our text today as well. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, yet another commentary, they note four causes of salvation laid out in this text. Number one, a primary cause, God's mercy. Our text opens with this. According to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again, Peter writes. Secondly, a proximate cause, which is a cause in time, as it were, Christ's death and resurrection. At the moment in time where Christ satisfied the payment of our sins and certified the completeness of redemption with His resurrection, that was the cause of our salvation. Thirdly, a formal cause, our regeneration. We are saved because, as we often say with young people, God has changed our heart. He has made us new. We are born again, in Peter's words. And four, Jameson, Foss, and Brown detail, or they note a final cause, that the author gives, Peter gives for our salvation, and that is our eternal bliss. So upon glorification, our salvation, full scale, will be complete. Now let's put that aside and we'll touch on some of these themes, no doubt, in a later, te- uh, later um, message. But for our purposes in our sermon today, let's focus on the scope of salvation expounded according to three aspects of the elect's act of the elect exile's salvation experience. And as we do so, let's also note that Peter structures his comments around each aspect, stating the basis, the instrument, and the effect of the believer's manifold hope in Christ. In other words, Peter lays out a foundation for the saving work of our Lord. He lays out the instrument, the means by which he accomplishes it. And he lays out the effect the expectation of what this will produce in the future. And this is a repeated theme throughout our text today. Each uh, line only multiplies in Peter's uh, worshipful opening to his, to his epistle here, his letter here. Each line only multiplies reasons why the, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is blessed and why we ought to join the apostle in blessing him 
with our own praises. And this leads us to verse 3, which opens as follows. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. Now, why the emphasis? Why this calling of attention? Why such a strong note in the text signaled by that exclamation point? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! What causes Peter to shout so? Everything he says following, which is this glorious account of the work of our salvation. Let's give, us, give ourselves a heading this morning to explore three central points. The heading is, elect exiles are, number one, born again. Elect exiles are, number two, guarded. Simply guarded will be our second major point. And number three, grieved by trial. Elect exiles are born again, they are guarded in their faith, and they are grieved by trial along the way. Why the term elect exiles? Just a reminder of verse 1. Peter addresses his letter as follows. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect exiles. This is his term for believers. Those who share a like faith as his own. Those who populate the churches in these outer regions. They are elect because God has sovereignly called them. It is Him who has appointed, it is God the Father who has caused them to be born again. And verse 3, therefore, therefore they are elect. They are exiles because they are not so at home anymore as they once were in their pagan cultures. In fact, the full-scale salvation that they are promised will not be realized until they are glorified. So until such time as we are glorified, we are in some sense an exile. We live in a land that is not fully our own or fully home quite yet. But we set our face unto a promised land or a future reality that is full-scale salvation realized. So elect exiles, first of all, we note in our text, are born again. This language is direct and it comes from two Greek words, the term born again, that have been combined to make one. In verse 3, Peter says this, According to, in the second portion, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God the Father has caused us. He has sovereignly ordained and accomplished a born again, a regenerative act in the heart, in the life, in the person of every true believer. This unique word, uh, use of two Greek words combined to make one appears only twice in Scripture, both in this chapter. Turn over to 1 Peter 1.23. Since you, again, remember he's addressing us, elect exiles, believers. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This unique use of two uh, Greek words is literally rendered beget, so that means to be born or to be, uh, to be uh, formed in the first place, to, uh, and then the second is anew, and so literally born again or beget anew is the, or uh, excuse me, again, beget again is the idea here. Two words which mean exactly as it's translated, born again. Now, this is Peter affirming in this way, 
the regeneration explained to Nicodemus in Jesus' own words in John chapter 3. There two words are used. Jesus uses the word in Greek for beget, and secondly, anew. And so it's absolutely synonymous, but it's a beautiful way of stating what is true of us in our uh, life and in the reality of our salvation once we come to Christ. We are born again. Now, this act, this sovereign may, uh, regeneration or being made new is according to His great mercy. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. So remember, I referenced three basic elements of Peter's structure, basis, effect, and instrument. The basis, that is the foundation or the ground, if you will, of us being made new is His great mercy. And note who is speaking. This is Peter. And we mentioned earlier that something of his personal experience would no doubt inform his extolling the Lord for his mercy. Let me turn you to the book of John briefly to demonstrate this. Go first to John 18. Peter was no stranger to the mercy of God. You recall the time when the pressure is on and the tables have turned. It seems like the enemies of Christ have gotten the upper hand and his sentence of death is hanging over his head. The crowd, the multitudes, the religious leaders, and the Roman leaders of the day are unified in condemning him, it would seem. And so the disciples are reeling in the context of this great persecution and this great turn of events. Their Savior, they thought, would one day, no doubt many of them, take over and establish his kingdom by usurping the authority of Rome, throwing them out on their ear and establishing his kingdom now all of that seems to be in a state of upheaval. upheaval. And Peter is pressed by the crowd. He's cross-examined to, to see if he knows who this one about to be condemned before Pilate is. John 18, 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. The once impulsive, apparent courage of Peter to cut off the ear of a servant in defense of his Messiah had now turned to quaking terror as he denied, betrayed indeed, his Savior, as other accounts provide for us three times, and then according to Jesus' own prophecy of this very act, the rooster crows. But this isn't the end of Peter's story. You would think that on that ground alone, he would be disqualified to be an apostle, wouldn't you? But no, the Lord restores Peter. The Lord causes him in the course of his life following his Messiah to be born again. And that basis of his mercy that established this saving work for Peter begins to produce effects and we turn over to chapter 21, and here we witness Peter being reinstated. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, do you guys remember what Jesus told Peter? Young people, what did Jesus tell Peter? Yes, Vera? Very good, Judah. Feed my lambs. Some of your Bibles may say, feed my sheep. Now, Jesus does this a second time and a third. 
until Peter finally responds in verse 17, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him finally, for the third time, reinstating him in his apostolic call with this instruction, feed my sheep. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, a parenthetical statement by way of explanation. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So you see how it is very likely that as Peter addresses the church, he does so from uh, motivated in part by his own experience, his own experience of the mercy of God reinstating him after he had betrayed and denied his Savior. And uh, from his experience of the prophecy that he would suffer for the name of his Lord. We are elect exiles like Peter was, like the inhabitants, the early Christians of Asia Minor were, according to the great mercy of our Lord. The context of Peter's own experience, as we've read, includes that of redeeming love. The love of Jesus Christ extended to his own, redeeming them from their once of sinful position and posture, even enemies of him before they're saved, unto service for his kingdom. Also, the context of one is one of prophecy, persecution, and calling to endure trial. Trials that will become familiar in some way, principally, to all true believers, and in the case of some of them, yes, even Peter, it would appear, even unto death itself. Peter says that we are elect exiles, and as such, we are born again. We are born again according to his great mercy, and we are born again to something, to a living hope. Verse 3 again, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If his great mercy is the basis, then to a living hope is the effect. It is the result or the consequences, the blessing, the benefit that our salvation, our regeneration affords us as believers. This is a hope that is not one that dies out, dries on the vine, sparks up for a while, but like in the parable of the soils, withers when it encounters the trials of the sun or the stones of the soil. No, for the true seed, which Peter uses that same analogy later, the true seed that is planted on soil that his great mercy has stirred, that the Holy Spirit has prepared for the truly fruitful to grow in, this hope is a living hope. It is robust. What do we know, or what can we say of this living hope? It is a hope that will endure. It is a hope that is robust. It has an immune system, if you will. A living body can resist disease because there are systems in place to deal with that which otherwise would cause it to decay, would take its life, would cause it to wear out and run down. A healthy immune system and the ideal scenario, a functioning healthy body is self-sustaining. So in this analogy, this living analogy, we have a metaphor for the kind of hope that we have. It's not hope that is fleeting. It's not hope that uh, uh, rises up in some kind of delusion, only to wither when reality sets in. It's, super, it's uh, sustaining in a supernatural way. Which, the only, which is the only kind of hope that will endure grievous trials. 
as Peter goes on to say and acknowledge. He will go through grievous trials as his Lord has prophesied and he acknowledges as much in these areas in which he writes. Are there other kinds of hope? Before I venture a few examples, let me just say this. Hope, biblically, is not some misguided, highly improbable reality. In the scriptures, hope is a certain conviction based on infallible covenantal promises by a living God. That is what hope is in Scripture. It is not a, you know, what the world might think, a pie-in-the-sky ideal, wishful thinking, fantasy, fairy tale of a highly improbable thing that may or may not happen as a crutch to deal with the reality of a difficult life. That's what a secular world thinks of, of our religion. They just think it's a means, a psychological tool to cope with the reality of life. No, they misunderstand what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a certain, infallible, unfailing, enduring word that Peter will go on to say is not like flesh, which is, or like grass, which withers and falls. No, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The grass withers, the flower falls, but our hope is absolutely fixed and stands eternal. And this entire record right here is proof positive, is absolutely authoritative, and gives us ground, according to His great mercy revealed in His holy scriptures and in all of His plan of redemption, that our hope is founded on certain promises by the God who created the world who initiated the plan of salvation, accomplished it in himself, in his son, and will fulfill and will bring to completion the good work that he's begun in every true believer. Are there other kinds of hope? Yes. There are hopes, you know, dreams, common language that we're familiar with, the novelty of something new. Some people, it's hard for us to understand or discern whether they're a true believer or not because we as humans, naturally get excited about something new. And God forbid, but it's sometimes the case that when people identify as a Christian, it could be just a new paradigm for them or a peer group or experience that gets them excited for a little while. The novelty of the new provides a certain hope, but this is not a living hope. It soon will die. Popular appeal. There are times when we might be in a context or listening to certain influences that make a popular appeal, you know, for us to pursue something. But you know, as well as I do, that these things come and go. The passion that I once had for collecting stamps, I seldom think about except as a funny illustration for a sermon such as this. I haven't looked at my stamp collection for 25 years. Sort of embarrassed that I was nerd enough to collect them back in the day. Stamp collecting was not a living hope. Far from it. Temporal reward. Think of Lot, Lot versus Abraham, our recent message. The fertile fields of the land, the plains of Zoar, the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, they promised a kind of hope for Lot, but it was just a temporary reward. And it soon gave way to fiery sulfur from heaven and he escaped by the skin of his teeth. Think of fleeting inspirations. I want to do a certain project. This is one that I'm really, you know, susceptible to. Do an innovative project and get, you know, something going. I'm going to build a house. I'm going to start an addition. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something artistic, creative. That's a fleeting hope. It's not a living hope. Once the initial spark of inspiration fades, then you're left with kind of the same old, same old. 
uh, you know, default position of day-to-day life. That is relatively mundane. People are inspired by persuasive presentations and all these things that I've listed and so many more, but they come and go with the basic cycles of life. Think of the trends and the movements and even so-called revivals that come and go. They don't necessarily represent a living hope. But such is not the case for those who are born again. He has caused us to be born again, and fruit of that very fundamental change is the perseverance of the saints. He grants us a living hope, that which sustains the vicissitudes, the trials, yes, even the grievous, fiery trials, even unto death of this life. We are born again unto this kind of hope. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus. This is the instrument, if you will, of our regeneration. All this again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is instrumental in our regeneration, our changed heart, our born-again experience. No one is born again except through the resurrection of Jesus. Archbishop Leighton comments on this scripture by saying of the resurrection, quote, not only is it the exemplar, that means example, not only is it the exemplar, but the efficient cause of our new birth. So someone might look at the resurrection of Jesus and say, just like Jesus was resurrected, so I have been born again. That is true, but there's more. In Jesus' resurrection, you were born again. That's saying much more. It's not just a metaphor, it's not just a symbol, it's not just something significant that represents an experience. While it is that, it is more. And this is a mystery that refers to union with Christ. When Christ was buried, baptism pictures this, by the way. Peter goes on to say in chapter 3, Romans uh, chapter 6, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection, his crucifixion, burial, and his resurrection are absolutely fundamental. They are the instrument, if you will, of our own salvation. What does it mean, union with Christ? What does that mean? It means that we are so closely bound to the experience of Christ that what happens to him is our shared experience as well. When he died uh, on the cross for our sins, uh, our sins were crucified with him or punished on his account, punished by his suffering. When he rose from the dead, our future selves were raised from the dead, absolutely secure. And so this is the language of scripture that indicates how important, how central the work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection are to our own salvation. And this is why when Paul is asked, what is the gospel? In 1 Corinthians 15 and other places, he refers to the events of the incarnation that we're the saving work of all elect exiles. He refers to Jesus' death on Calvary, his burial, and his resurrection. This is the gospel. Think of the resurrection and note all that is entailed. Let me just give you a few things. In the resurrection, Jesus was proved the Son of God. No man could raise himself from the dead, save the one who is not just, who is not merely man, but is also God. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
He demonstrated his divinity. In the resurrection, as we've mentioned, he certified our future hope. We will be raised because he was raised. In the resurrection, he accomplished our resurrection through union with him, that is to say. In the resurrection is manifest the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Because Christ completed the work that was necessary to pay for sins, he therefore was raised from the dead. The affirmation of God the Father that the acceptable sacrifice had been offered, namely his son and his stripes, his bleeding body, his uh, broken body and his bleeding wounds certified, or, and these were sufficient and absolutely certified so because the Father raised him from the dead. And finally, or two more things, in the resurrection, the road to Pentecost was paved. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, even more he ascended, and he said that this was good, that he would do so in order that the Comforter, the Helper, the Advocate, the indwelling Spirit, third person of the Trinity, attending our way from the inside would be a reality. And finally, this is, as we mentioned before, our experience in baptism. Baptism so closely is identified with the burial and resurrection of Christ because in that act is symbolized, is represented, and we share in the experience in that act of Christ's own work in resurrection. Therefore, we are elect exiles who are born again. And this born again experience is by His great mercy to a living hope and through the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, and more briefly today, guarded. Peter has detailed our hope And now he says that God will keep and he will protect and he will preserve what he has begun in us. He says as much in verses 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing. Notice this is also effect language. We are saved, uh, we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Who will keep our inheritance from spoiling? Ultimately, it is the Lord himself. Though our actions play into this and our fruit of our salvation, ultimately speaking, it is the work of the Lord sufficient to save. Undefiled. The work of salvation is without mistake, without error, without missing DNA in the new born again life. There are no birth defects, as it were, for all who are truly born again. Why? Because... The inheritance that we have in Christ is undefiled. And thirdly, it is unfading. It does not wear out, does not grow old, not subject to entropy. It has escaped the curse of the fall. Young people, what is the curse of the fall? What is the wages of sin? Because man sinned, he will what? Death. Death is the wages of sin. Because man sinned, he will die. However, for the born again man... He will never die. His inheritance is unfading. It's not subject to the effects of the fall. In fact, his inheritance is unto eternal life. So we see here how God guards us. He gives us an an imperishable and undefiled and unfading inheritance. Think of the inheritance that we've studied of late with Abram versus Lot. Lot chose inheritance or portion, as we use that term, among the cities of the plains in Sodom. Abraham trusted the inheritance that was according to the covenant, a lineage and a place and a promise of a messianic line, 
that would hold out hope for the future. Although it was in symbolic, in seed form, nevertheless, the promise, the inheritance that was given to Abraham and all who are children of Abraham, even you and I, is an an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading promise. Compare this (coughs) to other promises. Uh, You know, in our day and age, even the physical inheritance, the money that we've gained because of a corrupt uh, government system and illegitimate, iniquitous law that we live under is subject to attacks. So when a person, you know, earns a bunch of money, he can't pass on that undefiled, unfading, and imperishable inheritance to the next generation because much of it is just taken, (coughs) confiscated as taxes for the state. Our idea of inheritance (coughs) is corruptible. Things wear out even if we get our deceased relative stuff, you know, it's uh, worse for the wear. (coughs) Money can only get you so far, and even a lump sum is spent in short order in most cases. If the government doesn't take a significant amount before it enters your hands anyway. That is to say, in our experience, we have no corollary in this life of a true inheritance. As glorious, as hopeful, a living hope, and as beautiful and wealthy as is promised in our salvation. Note that this inheritance is guarded. (coughs) The inheritance of elect exiles is guarded by the Lord such that it is a perfect and powerful reality for our future. Now, there's a basis for this. It's by God's power. How are we guarded? How is our inheritance guarded? By God's power. This inheritance for B is kept in heaven for you. You guys remember the language of Jesus? He said, in part, it is good for him to go away. Not only, as we mentioned, that the Holy Spirit would come, but also he would go and prepare a place for us. Thanks, Isaac. He would go and prepare a place for us. That is picture of the inheritance that we have in glory. It's kept in heaven. It's actually uh, made in heaven. It's prepared in heaven, so to speak, by Christ for us. So, this inheritance and this reality kept in heaven for, for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 12? Again, just to note the background from which Peter writes, has Peter experienced the power of God to guard, and to keep, and to protect His work that he has ordained for his apostle, ultimately speaking to the future that he has prepared for him in heaven. Absolutely, and this is one of my favorite examples. It's so dramatic. Acts 12.6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries, sentries, soldiers, before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. I kind of like to think of an angel, you know, this glorious being uh, kicking, you know, prodding uh, Peter, saying, get up, get up. And so he kicks him as it were, uh, struck him on the side, woke him, saying, get up quickly. And guess what happened? The chains fell off his hands. Verse 8, and the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know 
that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was, he thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter's like, is this a dream? An angel just woke me up, my chains fall off, and I'm following him past sleeping guards, escaping this prison right now. Pinch me, is this real? Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is evidence of the power of God in the delivering experience of Peter from the chains and imprisonment of other powers. What we have here is guards versus guards. This guarding language literally means to keep watch as a military sentinel. A dispatch of soldier, a contingency of soldiers dispatched to actively and passively, whatever is necessary, defend by any offensive and defensive means the, uh, the necessary objective, guarding. So there are soldiers that are seeking to keep Peter in so no one breaks in or he can't break out. And then there is God who has promised to guard the purposes that he has ordained for Peter and, as a picture, guard his inheritance in glory one day. And evidence of this power is written down for us unequivocally in Acts chapter 12 when we see the chains fall off, the angelic uh, deliverer leading him out of the prison, and the gate just opening up on its, on its own accord. It's like he yeah, it was a superhero in that moment with these magical powers, and the way was made straight for him. There's nothing uh, magical about it. This was the angelic jailbreaking power of a holy God demonstrating to Peter in his experience that if he is powerful enough to release him from this prison, then he has purpose when he goes through grievous trials. And if he is powerful enough to release him from the chains of these authorities, he can certainly secure for him an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in glory. So that's the basis, God's power. The effect is an inheritance. There's an instrument through faith. As we continue to read in verse 5, we are, it's this inheritance kept in heaven by us, or for us, for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping us by an instrument, by faith. Through the faith that He has granted us, that is a firm conviction in the truth of His holy word, we will stand, we will endure. This faith is not something that we muster up in and of ourselves as far as source is concerned, but according to Ephesians 2.8, this is a gift of God, otherwise we'd be able to boast about it. But I wonder if you have considered the power of the supernatural faith, if you're a believer in this room, that God has given you. It is a faith that is powerful enough to guard you as a soldier, lest the enemy steal the seed that has been planted or make shipwreck of your soul. We are guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Think again of Abram versus Lot. Abraham was one who lived by faith. He was an example, not always to the positive, but generally speaking, the evidence of the Spirit in the life of Abraham is seen in that he didn't walk by sight, but walked by the revelation, by the word, by the covenant of his God. Thus, as Hebrews says, and we've referenced often, he set his face to a city whose designer and builder was God, a city as yet unseen. Nevertheless, his faith guarded him 
from the deceiving allure of Sodom and Gomorrah and kept his face in the end, though he went through trials, fixed upon his hope eternal. Now there's an effect of this faith. It is a faith for something. It is a faith that guards us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember full-scale salvation, the title of our message? The last time refers, you've got to remember, Peter is picturing salvation from start to finish. When everything that Jesus died to accomplish is finally realized, that is the fullness of salvation according to Peter. This in verse 9, he references as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Or in verse 5, this is the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Yes, you are saved according to the proximate cause. As one commentator put it, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, you are saved according to that cause, uh, that efficient cause, or excuse me, formal cause, your regeneration. You're saved in, a, in that you are born again. But there is a sense in which you will be saved and this salvation will be revealed in the last time. That is to say, you will say goodbye to every last vestige of your experience with the fallen world as the new heavens and new earth are pictured and as the new Jerusalem is laid out before us in Revelation 21 and those surrounding passages, we find that there is no more tears, no more pain, no more grievous trials, no more sorrow, sickness, no more wrestling with sin, but only our magnified and glorified and exalted state, not because of anything intrinsic to us, but because of the beautiful sin-washing and glorifying robes of Christ's righteousness that will have their complete and final work. This is the salvation that will be revealed at that last time or the consummation of his kingdom or the fullness of time or when Christ returns, all ideas connected to this promise. So we as elect exiles are born again and we are guarded. Finally, this morning, we are grieved by trial. Or you could say, elect exiles are tested. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a metaphor, a picture of the instrument of trial, namely testing by fire, that Peter uses. We recall the prophecy again in John 21. Your arms will be stretched out. You will go somewhere, not of your own accord. And this was to signal the death by which he would die. The prophetic reality of Peter's own calling is that he would be put, sent through a grievous trial, even unto a martyr's death. And so as he is well aware of this from the prophecy of his own Lord, who had the power to, remember, deliver him from prison, he knows full well that he therefore has purpose in this death by similar authorities. And so he's passing this along. He is saying elect exiles are guarded against any of the enemy's plans to come in between God's purposes and his ultimate hope of salvation. But there are times in the course where God in his sovereignty has purposed that the genuineness of our faith would be tested by fiery trial or by various trials. If necessary, 
You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested by fire. The idea is, of that which survives purification by fire, even gold, gold is purified by fire. There is something that goes through fire that is better still, more precious. Genuine faith is more precious still. Uh, In October, the middle of the month, most of you were there, we buried my grandfather, and um, the last words I heard my grandfather say was a prayer for me. Um, 96-year-old man, was he 96, remind me? 96-year-old man, on his deathbed, just days from giving up the ghost, and I couldn't make out everything he said, but he insisted before I go, he prayed for me, and those were the very last words that I heard my grandfather say to me. His faith in that time was tested by the fire of a failing body and the threshold of death. But he had faith and was evident in that prayer of something, hope, a living hope that lie beyond that transition from this physical existence to the spiritual and glorified reality of the next one. It doesn't look very impressive to the world, but there is nothing quite as powerful that you will ever witness in life than the prayer and the confident confession, even if it's in just two feeble words of a dying man. Because there is no other time in life where we feel the trial quite as (coughs) imminent as our own mortality when we come upon that time to die. Peter says that though we are grievously beset with trials at times, and if Christ should tarry, we all will face that last enemy. We can trust, according to the words of Paul, that he has defeated him. Now, what is the result of this kind of thing? That is, when trials have their way with us and produce what God has planned, even the strengthening of our faith, there is an effect. It says that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in something, an effect. What does it result in? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grievous trials that a believer is called to go through results in a glorious, praiseworthy, honorable, awesome existence and also in the capacity to do all those things, giving glory to the Lord, unhindered by all that were setbacks before as our glorification is reality upon the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls revealed in the last time, and so on. There is more basis for endurance. Peter says in verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not know, now see Him, you believe in Him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How can we endure trials? There's a basis for endurance. It is this faith that works itself out in a love and a belief and a joy, even though God Himself as yet by our physical eyes is unseen. Nevertheless, through the spiritual eyes of our understanding, even being opened through His Scriptures today, we are stirred, true believers are anyways, by the, proclam- by the right 
Lee divided word, proclaimed word of the Lord. They are stirred to love, faith, and joy, though God himself remains yet unseen by our physical eyes. And finally, the effect that Peter leaves us with in verse 9 is that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Once again, Peter's proclaiming full-scale salvation. The salvation of your souls refers in a context here not to the saving of your soul, which happens most principally when you are born again, but the saving of a person, of an individual, of you. The comprehensive work of salvation is finally evident. The outcome of your faith is fully realized when we are glorified, and at that time, the fullness of Christ's work on redemption is all ours. That is to say, upon our passing from this life, we are cashing in, so to speak, on the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is promised for us in Christ. This is the salvation of our persons, the salvation of our souls. This is the outcome of our faith. This is full-scale salvation that is the hope for any church like those in this re- these regions of Asia Minor that languish and are tempted to be discouraged because they're going through difficult testing times. Can we relate to them? If we can in any way, let us glean hope. Let us glean encouragement. Let us be reminded that our faith is guarded. Let us dwell with new and realized affections and glorious thankfulness for the reality, for the truth that we are regenerate, that we are born again. And let us realize that God has purposes and trials to refine us, to purify our faith, and in the end to usher us through that veil of tears unto a glorious reality of the full-scale salvation that we are promised in Christ. Today is Communion Sunday. Today we commemorate the events that preceded the resurrection, which sufficiently atoned for our sin. Young people, as we ask on the Lord's table Sundays, remind remind us today, what does the broken bread represent? What does the bread represent? Yes, Judah? That's correct. And what does the cup represent, young people in the room? Jesus' blood. That's correct. All the way back to Exodus 12, at the initiation of the original Passover, the young people's attention was called through these, through similar elements to these, to recognize that it's only by a sacrifice that God provides. A lamb, in that case, the Passover lamb, dying in place of the people, whereby we can escape. We can escape the angel of death. And so this Passover lamb came. John himself pointed to him, the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And so before us now is the meal that he initiated, fulfilling what the Passover feast was of old. And giving us instruction that at the Lord's table, the reasons to worship are multiplied infinitely because that precious faith that we have is only possible because of the precious blood that he spilled. The precious hope that we have, a living hope that will endure, is only possible because of his precious sinless body that was broken. So we have at the Lord's table reasons to worship multiplied infinitely as we add to our understanding of the miracle of redemption, what the Apostle Peter expounds for the church. 
So as you think about these elements and what they represent, think about what Peter has expounded for us. The basis, the effect, and the instrument whereby full-scale salvation is secured and applied to every true believer. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for your table. We thank you for the promises of your holy word. We thank you for the assurance of the same, the absolute certainty of our salvation because of the sufficiency of Jesus' work on Calvary, certified when you raised him from the dead, confirming for us that the payment for our sin was satisfied in that redemptive act where the lamb blood was shed and body was broken for us. Thank you for these things. Dear Jesus Christ, would you be glorified and magnified in our confession as we return to this altar place and remember the work that you did on our behalf, the expensive cost of our salvation beyond compare and the eternal hope that it purchased for for us undefiled in glory. Thank you for these things. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.